Hi everyone, welcome to Borderlands, a multi-episode podcast about the US-Mexico migration border policies and their impact on Borderlands communities in one of the most militarized, controlled and deadly counties of the border, Pima County in the state of Arizona. I'd like in this new episode to reflect on what happens to those whom the desert has engulfed. For some of them, their bodies will be found by hikers, hunters, ranchers, Tohono Damnation members, by people living in the borderlands. For others, the desert, its climate and its fauna will take care of erasing their traces in the upcoming days, and they could be lost forever. It's impossible to say exactly how many people have died trying to cross the border through the Arizona and Sonoran Desert, or how many bodies of people are currently there without having been recorded to date. The figures available are those meticulously kept by the PICOMI, the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner. Since the 90s, the PICOMI, based in Tucson, have recorded the cases that passed through these services which represent a good part of the border between Arizona and Mexico. According to these figures, between 1990 and March 2022, 3,624 people died trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border in Pima County, Arizona. 64% have been identified by the PICOMI. At the end of 2021, 1,244 people remain to be identified. The thick episode will focus on the different key players intervening in the identification process of people found dead in the desert of Sonora. A warning, this episode may contain parts that are difficult to listen to. Once pointed at lost souls, the desert, its climate and its fauna can descend without warning and erase the traces of a body in a few days. No words can soften the planned and unjust violence of what is playing out in the Sonoran Desert. In this episode, we'll listen to officials, practitioners, NGOs, researchers working on identification process in Pima County, Arizona. Let's begin with Mario Agundes, Border Patrol Missing Migrant Programs Coordinator for the Tucson sector. He explains the Missing Migrant Program of the Border Patrol Agency. The Border Patrol Missing Migrant Program can be a streamlined process of information. We form partnerships with stakeholders, which is the foreign consulates, the medical examiners, other uh, local, tribal, federal, county, state law enforcement entities, and more importantly, the community. The community being the family members of the migrants or any support system that be, you know, around them. So we said, okay, we have, we, we implemented this Miss a Migrant Program email. So you will, you know, if you want to share information with us, you will go through this email. With that email, we were able to disperse it automatically to the el operational elements that needed to, you know, start acting up on, on the search and rescue. That information was still a lot at the early stages. It was, people would say, well, my, my family member is missing somewhere between Mexico and Phoenix. At that point, we did not have any information to go on. We could not sustain or activate a search and rescue. So what we started doing as missing migrant program is um, with those foreign consulates, train them in, in how to actually obtain the information from the family members that was important for Border Patrol agents to initi initiate a search. At the same time, we had to learn from the family's distress and the anxiety of what was going on to kind of first thing first is figure out if this person was actually apprehended or not. 
So before we activated a, a search and rescue. And in many instances, they were because maybe the migrant did call 911 and they were encountered, but the family had no idea. So those pieces moving around a little bit, we learned that we had to take advantage of you know, the, the, the information, the valuable information that the family had and bring it into the missing migrant program as a piece of the puzzle of unresolved 911 calls. The platform that helped us out a lot to actually determine this is our actual uh, enforcement apprehension SIS database, where every migrant that we encounter out in the field, we bring them into the station, we process the, his biographic information, as well as his, their uh, fingerprints and picture, and therefore we're able to determine if this person, even though they might change their name or date of birth, or we might have mistyped it or misprinted, we still have their fingerprints. So at that point, we've, we've added another piece of the puzzle. The Border Patrol Missing Migrant Program worked in partnership with different institutions. Let's continue to listen to Mario Gundes talking about the work with the PICAMI, Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner. At that point, we're now trying to find ways to locate uh, bodies of decedents on the desert. But soon after that, we also learned that maybe there was a body that was already recovered by another Border Patrol agent that we did not know that the agent, you know, was, was in the area. So we're like, all right, the medical examiner has all these bodies. How about we go ask the medical examiner to see if we can gain access to the bodies they have and see if we can start, you know, looking through all those bodies for the migrant reports, missing migrant reports we already have. And that's when we started forming up with uh, Pima Medical Examiner Office. At that time, we also learned that there was another NGO working with them too, it was called Colibri. Um, we started meeting on a regular basis with the medical examiner's office. And it was, um, or missing migrant program agents with a representative of each of the consulates and the medical examiner presenting the body, the case, the uh, pocket trash, um, the phone numbers, whatever we could find in there, and also a set of fingerprints. So we're like, all right, well, let's run those fingerprints on a piece of paper and run them through the scanners. And soon after that, we started getting positive results after one after another of the fresh bodies. But they also went back to their old files and said, hey, we got all these other prints. So from there, we started getting more positive IDs. And what's about body recovery operations in the desert? What's happened? Well, and the totality of the circumstances indicate that maybe this migrant's already dead in the desert because it's been many weeks has gone by. The environment or the weather has been really harsh. Person might have a pre-existing medical condition. Then we determined, wait a minute, we might have to do a search and recovery. We did not have enough personnel for the time due to the fact that we, there was many other 911 calls that needed rescue at that point, and also maintaining the border security. As mentioned in episode three of this podcast, there are several civil initiatives such as search and rescue groups intervening in the desert of Sonora. There are volunteers who look for missing persons, but also doing recovery operations. The Border Patrol Missing Migrant Program can sometimes share information about a body location with one of them. But yet, there is no significant official initiative to recover the bodies of the person who died trying to cross the US-Mexico border. Let's listen to Jason DeLeon, professor of anthropology at UCLA, University of California in Los Angeles, president of the Colibri Center for Human Rights, and executive director of the Undocumented Migration Project. Well, you know, if you look at 
the, I mean, the border patrol is active when it's looking for living people and then becomes completely disinterested once people um, start to die. Um, and this is partly because a couple of reasons, you know, as soon as a migrant ceases to be alive, they no longer are the problem of the border patrol. They become a problem of state agencies like Pima County Sheriff's Office or the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner. So the border patrol, I mean, historically, doesn't have a vested interest in finding migrants. I mean, they're interested in making apprehensions. They're interested in making arrests and deportations, but um, they typically don't use recovered number of bodies as a metric for their success. And I think part of that is because if they were to start actively looking for migrant remains, um, it would become very clear through the public record that there's a lot of people out there who are dying because of border patrol policies and so, and, you know, and you can look at it in a different way. The Border Patrol has historically always undercounted the number of migrant deaths in, in a place like the Sonora Desert of Arizona. If you compare, like, what they consider to be a deceased border crosser to numbers collected by people like the, um, the ACLU um, or, or Pima County or others, um, other agencies, both, ind- both independent and state agencies, tend to make a higher count than the federal government. And this is partly because... You know, this, this Border Patrol policy, Prevention Through Deterrence, it is designed to kill migrants. It's designed to slow them down through extreme environmental conditions, through death. And so it's sort of functioning on one end, but on the other side of it, you know, those aren't really things that they want to say out loud, at least not anymore. I mean, we don't even talk about Prevention Through Deterrence anymore. I mean, we, we talked about it in the late 90s, and once it started getting a lot of bad press in relationship to this dramatic spike in migrant deaths, we, we ceased to to use that terminology within the public record, even though that is still the primary security paradigm that is in place today. I mean, it's been going on since the 90s, and yet you've never heard Joe Biden, Donald Trump, or Barack Obama really talk about prevention through deterrence as a strategy. So I think it's something that, um, in a lot of ways, people are invested in, in keeping it secret. So, you know, the Border Patrol has their missing migrant project in Arizona, which, um, has not been very successful, which is a very, very small scale compared to everything else. I mean, they, they, they have no problem throwing hundreds of millions of dollars at a virtual fence that doesn't really work, and yet they can't find it in their budget to hire more than two full-time staff to work on this issue. Um, I know that, you know that they've got a new initiative in, in South Texas where they're trying to now look for, look for migrant remains. And for me, you know, it's too little too late. I mean, why invest a couple hundred thousand dollars a year from one of those projects when they could literally just stop using these policies that kill people and cost men end up costing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on the other end to deal with with dead bodies, to deal with the identification. I often heard that the desert of Sonora is used as a weapon, that its violence descends on the body of people who find themselves lost there. Jason DeLeon talks about necroviolence. He explains. You know, when I talk about necroviolence, you know, really all that means is that you've got these things that happen to bodies post-mortem that I consider to be very violent. I consider to be political, often in nature. I mean, so in a general sense, necroviolence is just the the defacement uh, of, a, of, of human remains that then that then constructs some form of violence experienced by, you know, by the, by the living. So, you know, seeing a body dismembered 
you know, is a form of violence that the living then have to experience, which is why, you know, folks like, like drug cartels tend to use, you know, stage dead bodies, dismembered dead bodies as a way to send violent messages towards the living. And so for me, that, that's, those are forms of, of necroviolence. Um, what happens in the desert, you know, I consider to be a, a really politicized form of necroviolence in that you've got this desert environment that is being used by, by a government to, to slow people down, to to essentially kill them and then these bodies lay out there for years they get destroyed by the environment they get ravaged by animals and so it's not only the fact that like we don't want you here and we're going to find ways to to keep you out and potentially ways to kill you through through border enforcement strategies but then also we're going to let your bodies rot out in the desert we're going to let your bodies disappear and for me perhaps the worst form of necro violence that you can imagine are these people who die in a place like the Sonora Desert of Arizona, and their bodies are destroyed, and then their their loved ones, their family members, will never get closure. They'll never have a sense of, you know, where is my son, where is my daughter, what happened to my father or my mother, because their body has been consumed by by vultures. It's been destroyed by um, by rain and rushing water, and so now, you know, those individuals are stuck in this perpetual state of grief. And for me, that's this form of violence that happens to these bodies that is never ending. Because as far as as those families are concerned, they're never going to have closure until un, until they know what actually happened to their loved ones. But unfortunately, because of the way the environment works out there, and also because of the fact that, that there's no funding to do this, I mean, to, to identify these bodies or to go and look for them. You know, these folks are never going to know what happened to to their family members, and so I think that that's like it's it's also this ne- negligence that the U.S. government is doing by not systematically trying to find bodies and not you know paying for the DNA analyses and actively trying to identify these bodies. That form of negligence for me just also keeps people in this perpetual form of of grieving, which I consider to be very violent. Violence is directed at the body of people found in the desert. It should be noted that some actors also provide care. Let's listen to Robin Winicki, Assistant Research Social Scientist at the University of Arizona Southwest Center. She is a social cultural anthropologist with different specializations, among which transnational migration, forensic anthropology, and the anthropology of death. One of the things that I was really observing and aware of that I feel I often want to say is that um, it's not just that people are dying on the border, but it's also that their remains are often destroyed, um, which is, it's, it's like the family goes through layers of death. First, the disappearance, and there's a social kind of death that happens. Then maybe if they are lucky, they get information that the person did die. Then they go through receiving often another kind of terror Um, which is that the body has been destroyed in some way or another. So um, usually just by the elements, um, decomposition happens very quickly. There's a lot of animals and, um, you know, scavenger activity in the, just in the natural border uh, ecology. Um, but it's horrifying that it's unthinkable to leave bodies out to be preyed upon by animals. That's a really big... Um, historically bodies would be left out as a severe form of punishment so 
the remains that I saw and that I was involved in helping families to receive were destroyed by the natural environment, but also sometimes by um, efforts to identify them. Um, so just today I was talking with uh, one of the pathologists at the medical examiner's office about, yeah, we, you know, when we realized that if we removed the hands, we could get better fingerprints, um, but we were concerned about that. But we decided ultimately that it's worth it because it's an attempt to help the family get that person back. And ultimately I see the work of the medical examiner's office in removing the hands or removing the head or removing the, um, the pubic bone. Um, ultimately that's an act of care, not violence. Um, it's, in, it's done with the intent to help the family and maybe the deceased um, to be reunited. But it can be really traumatizing for the family. And I think there's a burden of explanation there that unfortunately due to language and due to distance and all of these, the transnational nature of the issue, um, unfortunately, sometimes families are opening caskets to see something horrible. And um, they have, I believe, the right to understand why all of that was done and it wasn't done disrespectfully. It was done with care. Um, but it shouldn't have had to be done in the first place. You know, they shouldn't... People should not have to be dying outside and um, be that unrecognizable to where invasive techniques are needed to identify them. In Arizona, among the diversity of key players involved in the issue of the deceased person identification, the Colibri Center for Human Rights is an important element of the collaborative work that is being carried out. This NGO facilitates the link between the families and the actors of the identification, in particular the institutional ones, like the consular services or the PICOMI. Let's listen to Mitsa Monteroso talking about her work at the Colibri Center for Human Rights as the director of the DNA Missing Migrant Project. The Colibri Center is a nonprofit who works to try to help families uh, in the search of their loved ones. Uh, we collaborate with uh, scientific uh, organizations like uh, Office of the Medical Examiner, consulates, and uh, the families to try to be... Uh, facilitator for their search. So because we have forensic training, we also work and provide the doctors with all the help that they need to get the important information to try to identify somebody. So every time a new case comes, we get notified. So we get to see first all the information, uh, how, where, and if there is any property that helps. On the other hand, we are always receiving missing persons reports from the families or consulates or nonprofits. These missing persons reports takes uh, an average of half an hour to an hour uh, to collect all the information that we need. Pictures, we do a very in-depth research. When a remain comes to the FEMA office, we look into our database and make sure that nobody there that we currently have matches that description. If this person matches the description that we have, we provide the doctors with the connection of the two cases. And also the doctors have access to our database so they can connect them too if we, uh, for some reason, miss out. 
So that helps a lot because uh, it shortens the time. Uh, consulates usually get notified uh, a week after the remains are recovered. So especially with cases that are very recent, it's very helpful if we can connect the cases, provide the doctors with the whole information, and then puts the case ahead to a request from the consulate or whoever they need the information. The Colibri Center has facilitated the identification of 204 people since 2013. The identification process is a joint effort. The Colibri Center works with different institutions. Consulate are one of those. Guatemala, El Salvador and Mexico all have consulate in the city of Tucson. Honduras has one in Phoenix. Enrique Gomez Montiel, Deputy Consul of the Consulate of Mexico in Tucson, explains the mission of the SIAM, the Center for Information and Assistance for the Mexicans. The border between the states of uh, Sonora in Mexico and Arizona in the United States is uh, unfortunately a deadly uh, place for migrants that try to cross the border. Uh, this is a hot spot, and when I say hot, I'm talking about the weather, because during summer, the, the temperature may reach uh, 50 degrees Celsius. So that's uh, a very, very hot region. And uh, unfortunately, that also means that uh, people who don't know the risk or who minimize the risk of the extreme heat during summer and in some other uh, parts of the year as well, they tend to cross and think that these are only 60 or 80 kilometers and that in many cases these people have already traveled for 2,000 or 3,000 kilometers from southern Mexico and Central America. And when they arrive here, they don't realize the danger or they don't want to see the real danger in front of them. They just see that 60 or 80 kilometers is just one last step and it is not. Those are the 60 or 80 deadliest kilometers of their journey. And in that regard, the Mexican consulate has been working with the, two, with the medical examiner, with the Pima County medical examiner, for the last 20 years. We have in our consular protection and legal department one of our colleagues who has specialized in working closely. So at the beginning, he was going there every week to see the belongings or the clothing or everything that was related to to the uh, to a set of human remains or to a dead body to see if there were any hints that could lead us to identify this person sometimes with the clothing there was small paper hidden somewhere i don't know in the uh, cuffs of the of the shirt or in the color of the shirt or somewhere in the trousers or in in a shoe or hidden somewhere a a small paper with a telephone number or with a name or a birth certificate or an ID. And that actually was the the starting point to try to find the the family. Well, the, the experience proved to be successful because as time went by, the the number of identifications also went up. Uh, on the other hand, uh, for many years, we have been doing this uh, with, a, oh, of course, always with a scientific approach because it is not because one migrant was wearing a yellow T-shirt that this is the person who we think may be. In this regard, 
there have been fingerprints that have been run off in different databases, DNA exams, and uh, in other cases, the Pima County Medical Examiner has also been equipped with a special camera that allows to see tattoos in bodies that are even in, in, a, in an advanced process of uh, decomposing. So there are many aspects, and uh, in, in all the cases, the, the purpose is to have a full identification through a scientific method. So that way we can actually help repatriate the remains and uh, give a family a closure. The CM is a, not merely a call center. We, we can say that this is a call center that is based here in Tucson, but we call it a humane answer because all the people that work at Siam are actually trained to give a humane and personalized service to each person that is on the line. In this regard, we know that uh, people who call Siam is based here in Tucson, but it's a nationwide service. So they receive phone calls from Mexican people that may be anywhere in the United States, in Alaska, in Florida, in Boston, in San Diego, in Nebraska, everywhere. And the questions they, they answer go from uh, a very basic thing, like what kind of documents do I need in order to renew my passport, to more, how can I say, to more um, important things in terms of uh, human life. So, for example, they will receive phone calls from uh, a family in Mexico or here in the United States looking for a, for the relative that may have migrated to the United States and they don't know what happened to this person. And thanks to their work, they have uh, access to different databases and they may know if this person is detained or in prison anywhere in the United States. So that way they can actually tell the family what or where the relative is. In some cases, uh, it's also important to mention that some people run away from their past and they don't want to be found anymore. So there's also this confidentiality of uh, data that if you find that a person is uh, located somewhere in the United States and this person doesn't want to be found, well, there is this confidentiality to be respected. But the most important thing here, talking about people that have disappeared while crossing the, the border, is the fact that Siam receives phone calls from people that know that the relative tried to cross the, the U.S.-Mexico border through unauthorized areas that may be somewhere in Texas or in Arizona or anywhere in the border. And uh, sometimes it's the person who actually calls out of despair knowing that their own life is in danger. So all people at Siam are trained to deal with these uh, kind of uh, situations. First thing to do is to tell the, the person or the family to tell this person to dial 911 because that way they can their, their telephone can be traced either by the Mexican 911 or by the US one and get the specific GPS coordinates so that the authority can rescue them. In some cases, these people don't have a phone anymore. They, they run out of the battery or they provided some information. So the, the people at CM are trained to request as much information as they can so that they 
can obtain more precise information or where of where this person was, where was the last place that uh, they identified, if there were more people with them, where they were, how long they walked and in which direction and so on, so that uh, with all this information they may actually they actually provided to the U.S. authority, for example, the Border Patrol has a rescue unit, which is called Borstar, and uh, their mission is to rescue these uh, migrants that may be in despair because their lives are at risk. So Siam provides all the information so that these people can be rescued alive. According to a study of the Binational Migration Institute of the University of Arizona, based on the Picomi statistics, migrants who have died in Thousand Arizona are largely male from Mexico. The Picomi is also a central identification player. This office is in charge of identifying bodies in three of the four counties along the border between Arizona and Mexico. Let's listen to Greg Hess, forensic pathologist and chief medical examiner of the Picomi. So basically, you know, things that we've developed over time to help us identify people are driven by the, how we find the remains and uh, how the way people uh, decompose uh, is, does change depending on where uh, the death occurred. So a death in a body of water does not, um, a body in water like an ocean or a lake or something decomposes very differently than a body on shore, right? Um, deaths in humid environments, uh, where the humidity of the air is much higher than here, would be the decomposition would be much different as well. So we get a lot of uh, drying of the body because it's a very hot, dry environment. So we get a lot of mummification. Mummification is just drying of a body after death. It does not have anything to do with the concept of a mummy like King Tut or something. So we're not talking about an attempt to preserve remains Um, like embalming or mummifying them, wrapping them up. And, uh, so not like a mummy in a movie, but like a mummification is drying. So uh, <clears throat> rehydrating dried skin uh, to get fingerprints is something that we do, and we do that a lot because of the environment that people die in here. Um, so yes, we are have a long experience with that and um, have good results with our rehydration processes just because we've done it so much using infrared photography to look for tattoos in mummified skin uh, we do a lot of that um, other parts of the country probably don't ever do it because they just don't get a lot of mummified skin when skin mummifies it turns very dark so somebody may have it you might have a light-skinned person that has a visible tattoo when they're alive but after they die and dry out you can't you can't see that tattoo under visual light so we've done a lot with infrared photography but All of that said, you can collect all this DNA information that you want. If you, if you don't have anything to compare it to, it doesn't do anyone any good other than you have it. Um, so, you know, it's been um, difficult over time with, you know, how do people share DNA information? How does DNA that we collect uh, from a postmortem sample get compared against family reference samples? What databases are, are the DNA that we collect able to be Um, located in different databases have different criteria you have some relatives in some remote village somewhere in Guatemala in a rural area how you know how's their DNA going to get to somewhere where they can be compared against our postmortem you can kind of imagine the challenges um, 
uh, with that and the groups that are involved in that and the interest in their own countries and collecting that information has changed their trust or their their willingness to interact with their own government uh, that you know may they may be distrustful of doing that so it uh, uh, it's changed a lot over time I guess the Picomi has a team experience in identification techniques especially in rehydrating bodies for fingerprints for instance the identification work, needs cooperation at different levels. Again, families are central. You really can't move forward with identifying someone if you can't identify where family might be. So you you really need family involvement to assist with that process. Um, And if you you just can't get information about the family, if they're not looking for them, then you won't be identifying them. You may have the person have an alias linked to that death based on some article of clothing or material or identification or a piece of paper found with the remains when they were recovered, but you would need to prove it. So that's probably the biggest barrier is uh, whether or not you get access to family. This sixth episode shows how, beside the key role of families and relatives, different entities also work on the identification process. For now, in southern Arizona, 2021 is the deadliest year for people who try to cross the border. Indeed, 226 persons were found dead. As we now understand, the figures are certainly more frightening than what it seems. This episode is the last one of this series. To produce this podcast, 34 people were interviewed for six months in 2021 from the state of Arizona in the United States. They were systematically asked two questions at the end of the interview. How do you think we can stop the deaths and disappearances at the border? And what does the expression freedom of movement make you think of? For the first question, the responses were as follows. Stop the American migration policies as they exist. Open the borders. Facilitate access to work for foreigners in the US. Or even financially support the countries upstream of the American border. For the second one, some interviewees were skeptical of the idea of freedom of movement. They didn't think it was possible. However, in view of the changing climate condition and a desire to strive for equality, other interviewees declare that freedom of movement is the only choice we have to move forward. Whatever our point of view is, perhaps the question today is not whether to be pro or con freedom of movement, but whether we can harm ourselves with courage to put the subject on the table not as a nonsense, but an alternative path for all, in a world that is eating up. Border regime violence, death and disappearances are not inevitable. Pragmatism would then be not to continue what we are doing wrong, but to think about the world that awaits us, the climatic constraint that will be imposed on us, and the adaptations, especially in terms of mobility and installation, that we must lead with respect to the rights of everyone. Thank you for following Borderlands a multi-episode podcast about the U.S.-Mexico migration border policies and their impact on communities. And don't forget, this episode was mixed by Nicolas Puissant. Merci, Nico.